2: This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. In our newsroom, we've been having a lot of conversations about how we cover the Israel-Hamas war. And sometimes we find ourselves conflicted about who to talk to, what stories to cover, the language we use, and what we can do to make our coverage as fair and truthful as possible. As journalists, we understand that how we cover war can really shape public opinion about that war. Today, we're talking about just that. And because this conversation didn't just start with the recent Israel-Hamas war or even the Russia-Ukraine war. Joining us now to talk about all of this is Professor Scott Wallace. He's an associate professor in the Department of Journalism at the University of Connecticut. Scott, welcome to where we live today.
3: Good morning. It's my pleasure to be here.
2: And also with us is Adrian Bonenberger. He's a writer and journalist who published pieces in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Boston Globe, and many other outlets. He was also deployed twice to Afghanistan with the U.S. Army. Adrian, thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: And we'll start with you, Adrian. You know We know that the media can play an enormous role in shaping public opinion about war, as we mentioned earlier. And before we talk about what's happening right now, I want to ask, you know, how has this played out in different wars and conflicts in our history, such as war in Afghanistan, Iraq, World War II, and even more recently, the Russia-Ukraine war?
1: I think there's always a, a push and pull between what journalism, uh, what what the media wants to cover, and what they're given access to by militaries. Um, There's a kind of paradox in war, uh, to get right to it, which is that um, we have our understanding of war from the outside, and then there's where the war is happening, which is in a city or in trenches. And a journalist getting to that place where the war is happening physically is very difficult um, because there are no rules there. And as a result, no military has a vested interest in bringing a journalist to war. Um, when I was in the U.S. Army uh, as an infantry officer, uh, the New York Times embedded with my, um, with my unit on my second deployment. And it was very important for me to get them to that place for that reason so they could see what was happening. Um, but there are a lot, of, um, a lot of challenges, I think, both for the military, for the government, and then for media – To get journalists to the place where they can accurately and effectively cover war as it happens
2: and scott i want to go back in time a little bit just to get some historical context can you talk about the history of how the media has influenced the vietnam war and also our opinions about it
3: yeah very interesting Um, if you look at the early coverage of the vietnam war um, early on before it really became an american war and um you know with the huge deployment that um lyndon johnson carried forward in 1964-65 uh, a schism developed um uh, opened up uh within uh between the press and um and the u.s officials and the saigon government um by 1961-62 and part of that schism this was really the first time that the press um in the post World War II era that the press really exerted itself as a kind of adversarial force a lot of that had to do actually with the divide that was developing within the U.S government itself uh largely between uh people on the ground mid-level mid-level officers who were speaking to the journalists um the resident journalists in Saigon and showing them the war and telling them that it was you know, the, that the war was not being prosecuted in the way that would result in a positive outcome. And the, uh, uh, the official line imparted by the U.S. Embassy and um, the White House and the State Department back in Washington. So there was actually a um, schism inside the government that also was reflected in the press. Um, probably, you know, and and the clearly as the war went on, um, the more difficult that war became, and as the casualties mounted, and as we, um, you know, laid waste to vast stretches of the country, and then into Cambodia and Laos, um, you know, it became uh, clear that um, there was, the gulf between press coverage and the official line in Washington um, widened. I think as a result of Vietnam, The um, those involved in media policy and public relations in the Pentagon and elsewhere were determined not to give um, to control the press better and to control the narrative um, and control access to the front lines. In Vietnam, the reporters had extraordinary access to, you know, speaking to Adrian's point. The press had extraordinary access they could just hop on helicopters and find themselves in the midst of combat and there wasn't a great deal of control over um of the, over their coverage um in central america where i worked as a correspondent in the 1980s where the u.s was supporting um and arming uh, the belligerent sides in el salvador to some extent in guatemala and the contra rebels in nicaragua we enjoyed an amazing access to all sides of the of, of the conflicts it was harder to get to the Gu- guatemalan guerrillas it was very dangerous but to get to the guerrillas in el salvador for example or the contras in nicaragua was um was not that difficult although of course there were dangers involved but that allowed us to move um quite freely back and forth between the countries and across the front lines um, and so that was an interesting situation, but um, you know, by the time the Gulf Wars came around, the invasion of Panama kind of kicked that off and the the, the Gulf Wars, um, you know, access to both sides of the story um, began to um, shrink, if you will. And um, it's been clearly much more difficult in recent years for, uh, for reporters to cover um, you know both sides or how many other si- other sides they may, may be besides the two um you know just being a Westerner in certain contexts as we've seen with ISIS in the Middle East um you know reporters who have tried to um get into Syria and elsewhere who have been captured and beheaded uh, gruesomely um kind of speaks to the issue of how difficult it can be to um access the front in these wars.
2: Well, we definitely are going to get into more about the accessibility for press in a little bit, but Scott, I also want to talk about there seems to be a lot of parallels right now between Vietnam and the Israel-Hamas war where there is a schism on how to cover this conflict. Can you talk about what we're seeing right now in the Israel-Hamas war and how the media is covering this war? You know, Are you, are you seeing an, an echo of the gulf that you spoke on between the government, the governments and the press?
3: yes i am it's a little bit of a different situation i would say there's also you know pretty significant gulf between american coverage of the conflict and the coverage uh, provided by european outlets and um and other outlets around the world middle eastern outs- outlets um you know american coverage i i think for the most part tends to be uh, Israel is our ally. We share a lot of um, commonality there with the Israelis, and I think that that um, kind of makes the coverage more challenging for um, for American journalists to provide, you know, fair and balanced coverage. Uh, it's also very difficult, of course, to get to the front lines in the Gaza war unless you're embedded with the Israeli Defense Forces uh it's a really dangerous conflict um some 70 or so Palestinian reporters and media workers have been killed uh since the um since the reprisals against the horrific um October 7th attack um began kicked off this conflict um so Uh, there is a lot of um, uh, dissonance I would say in trying to cover this conflict and um, within the Israeli press and within Israel's you know broader society there's definitely a schism opening up too between um, you know the the more um, between I would say perhaps mainstream Israeli society and Um, the uh, more conservative hard right elements in the Netanyahu government. And that's reflected in Israel's press coverage as well.
2: And Adrian, we covered a lot of ground just now, but you've been listening and following. Are there any points that Scott's made that you want to respond to?
1: Yeah, um, I think uh, not so much uh, respond as add um, a kind of uh, a little bit of context, which is that I think um, probably few of the listeners to this program, but many um, people who consume media, media uh, may be under the misapprehension that a person with a cell phone or a smartphone um, is a journalist. So a person recording a fact is a journalist. So what we're talking about, I think, here is press and press access. And being a journalist, um, I, and I think this is a pretty important point, because being a journalist is obeying a set of professional ethics and standards that's not dissimilar to being a scientist. In that you have sources, you have things that you write into an article such that any journalist should be able to go to the sources that you've gone to and create, you know, 95% to 100% of the same article that you have. Um, And, you know, a a lot of the coverage where you don't have journalists ends up being um, rumor or a video that's completely out of context or an assumption. You hear an explosion. You think your family was in a building or you think this is a particular military unit. It isn't. You've gotten some of the facts wrong. But by the time that account circulates, it's too late. And and, and that's in a sense worse than no information because bad information leads people to bad conclusions. So I I, I don't know. I think uh, Professor Wallace would probably find this interesting as well and probably does just this sort of – this strange distinction that we have today and probably over the last decade where you have the proliferation of people calling themselves citizen journalists, propagandists, uh, well-meaning citizens, uh, all of these things forming a kind of narrative tapestry that we probably think of as journalism, but it isn't that. It's, it's something a little bit different from that. And then you have the press who are you know, somebody with an accredited media institution who's trying to embed with the 10th mountain division in Poland as they train Ukrainian soldiers or who's trying to embed with a, an IDF unit and and is then following journalistic practice.
2: I want to sort of press on that a little bit because the landscape of of what press is has certainly changed over the years. And there's definitely a set of journalis- journalistic standards that we follow as journalists, of course. Um, but with this sort of advent of citizen journalists, we do sort of get a, a different kind of unfiltered information coming through. So so what do you make of that? Because it's 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 a relatively new, I think, landscape that we're working with as journalists, trying to balance the line between sending a video in that's not edited, let's say, versus a piece that that has a lot of thought and processes that went through it. Not to say that video didn't have the same process, but there is sort of a difference here. Can you help us differentiate that and how do we navigate that, you know, both as a journalist and as a consumer of information?
1: Well, to begin with, you know, like anybody who's written for a, 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 a serious publication um, and, and I'm not going to assign any names because I want to keep that, you know, as, as broad as possible, the definition of a serious publication, has, has worked with fact checkers, has worked with at least one editor and probably a layer of editors, uh, may, if they're old enough, have, have worked with a copy editor. Um, I can say that the pieces that I've published with the New York Times, the Washington Post and the Boston Globe have had, you know, layers upon layers of edits before they were published, um, almost down to the, the word level, not just the sentence level. Um, and so if you, if you haven't really supported what you're writing with some sort of, um, you know, fact, then what you're writing is, is, is questionable. Um, and, and I think that's important because, you know, you look at, say, information coming out about Ukraine. And I'll take a, an example of I think the, the question about Ukraine that I hear the most from people, the, the skepticism, is Ukraine is a corrupt country. And this is true, and and it's very easy to see examples of corruption in Ukraine and Ukrainian society. But what's left out of that, like the very important context that one needs to understand about Ukraine, is that the revolutions that happened in 2004 and 2014 were Ukrainian citizens who were really tired of the corruption. And a lot of the effort today, even I would say maybe the war, is a, a reaction against a certain type of opaque unaccountable government that, that we ourselves as Americans, uh, and I think just about anybody in the world, finds to be, you know, they really dislike it. So if you don't have that context, then saying Ukraine is corrupt, you know, you miss a very important point. That is, you know, that's all over war. Um, and I think, you know, the difference between somebody in the press who's going to a frontline unit with the IDF um, or with, um, with the U.S. military, any any you know, formation. Um, they're going to see what they see on the ground and they're going to write what they see, and then an editor editor is going to look at that and, and that editor has probably spoken with somebody in government and actually understands what the context of that is and is then going to be able to present that as truth. Whereas um, you know, it, while it's useful and interesting and informative to be able to see videos at the point at the time of what you're seeing. And those. I'm not saying that these things are useless. I'm just saying that it's, it's something different from journalism. And um, uh, another point that I would make really quickly with citizen journalists specifically is a person calling themselves a journalist, doing analysis, writing a thing, is still not a journalist if they're not obeying uh the principles of journalism if they're not attempting to contextualize a thing and see things from all angles so what they're writing is the truth rather than their opinion
3: if I could jump in just for one second check on Adrian's made some really good points there but I'm not sure I would agree with you know the, the with that an editor checking with the government provides you know a check against uh inaccuracy in, in a lot of cases I have experienced myself the situation where you know the government has a definite um, point of view the official line and things that um, that a reporter might see on the ground could contradict that and yes uh, even if the reporter uh supports his arguments with facts sometimes it turns out that the editor is more inclined well often is more inclined to listen to the government source in Washington than to trust the eyes and ears and judgment of the reporter on the ground in the country where things are, um, where where the events are unfolding. I think that's particularly true, actually. In this, it's very interesting today, we have, you know, more and more, a lot of the coverage is being provided by freelancers and so-called stringers, um, as news organizations have sought to cut back on expenses, um, the the void is being filled more with freelancers and often the editors don't trust their freelancers, I, 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 you know, in in some cases, I would say, are less inclined to trust the freelancers who are reporting for them than the official source in Washington.
2: Well, I appreciate that. A lot just because I'm also a a former uh, freelance journalist, and I do see that a lot, even at the local level, really. And and with the point that you just made, Scott, I want to ask about sourcing, too. You mentioned sourcing, especially the relationship between press and, and government officials, let's say. Um, How much of that matters when it when it comes to covering conflict, you know, whether you're talking to people directly impacted by the war, involved in the war from civilians to those on the front line in the Israel-Hamas war, to leadership, you know, all those sources can provide very, very different perspectives. So how does who is featured and interviewed matter in this case?
3: I'm sorry, what was the last part of your question?
2: How does does who is featured and interviewed matter? I
3: think it's tremendously important. Um, You know, the journalist, the the professional journalist, um, such as the one, um, the kind of journalist described by Adrian, um, will try to talk to as many people and as many types of sources as possible, um, sometimes because of time limitations or because it's too dangerous to get to sources on one side of a conflict or impossible in some cases, but clearly what the work that we do as journalists is largely you know we do collect intelligence um and information and you're the strongest the stronger um your sourcing is the the greater number of sources and the greater diversity of sources you have for a story the more complete your your report is going to be the the big difference of course being that we are reporting to the public and not clandestinely providing information to um a government or a corporation um but uh yeah the the more sources you have um it's like putting together the pieces of a puzzle or a mosaic um and and you know you might have a good idea of what you're starting out to write but the good journalist will be you know will notice that something he's just picked up from a source kind of throws off what he what he or she may have thought you know um prior to that interview so um the 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 mosaic the puzzle is always in a process of evolution and really depends on the thoroughness um of a journalist not only in covering and in interviewing as many people and as wide a range of people as possible but also doing you know exhaustive research through documents and and, um, and, uh, and reports.
2: You've been listening to Professor Scott Wallace, who's an associate professor in the Department of Journalism at UConn. Thank you so much, Scott, for being on where we live today.
3: Thank you. It's been a great pleasure.
2: Adrian Bomberger, who is a writer and journalist, will be staying with us. Coming up next, social media means everyone, and anyone can report and share their opinion on the war effort. And we talk about why that matters. You can join the conversation 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live.
3: So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on-the-go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to, to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery.
1: For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash elevatinghealth.
2: This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Today, we're talking about how the news media influences public opinion on war. Still with us is Adrian Bomberger, who is a writer and journalist. And where are you getting your information on the Israel-Hamas war? Odds are you're probably hearing about this war through social media. Joining us now is Michael Spikes. He's a lecturer and program director at the Medell School of Journalism, Media, and Integrated Market and Communications at Northwestern University. Michael, thank you so much for joining where we live today.
4: Great to be here.
2: And for our listeners, you can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Michael, you've been following along the conversation. How are you seeing social media start to play a part in this conversation about Israel-Hamas war and how that's shaping public perceptions around it?
4: Yeah, I think the conversation uh, in the last segment that was about citizen journalism, I think, really plays a big part into how we might think about social media as playing a part in the information that people are getting about the war. Um, as we heard, there's people have lots more opportunities to get what has been termed and was mentioned in the last segment as very unfiltered information that comes out of places like Ukraine, comes out of Israel, the West Bank, and so on. But a lot of times that unfiltered information is missing things like context, details, and all of the other things that we would hope that would help us as consumers to make meaning, to make sense out of what we're seeing. So I think in the dearth of those things, again, context, details, facts, we can tend to make misassertions of what we're seeing And we're seeing that those misassertions of what we see are really causing people to have the wrong sort of perceptions of what actually may be going on.
2: And I think we saw a little bit of that, I think, with the advent of blogging. I feel like in the early 2000s when that became more popular and now, we're sort of extending that popularity into social media. So, Michael, I want to I want to talk about two sort of. You know, circumstances have changed how we cover a lot of stories. So can you talk about the role of citizen journalists in Palestine in particular?
4: Um, Well, in particular, I think some of the things that we've been seeing is that they, they and lots of other citizen journalists have or other media creators, even the consumer, even the media consumer has now become not only a consumer, but a producer of information, as we heard, like from that concept of the citizen journalists and the platforms from which we are getting much more of the information um, that we use to get through our days is coming through these sort of, again, unfiltered, unmediated uh, platforms such as Facebook, X, formerly Twitter, TikTok, and so on. And those platforms have allowed for, you know, more and more users to have a very sort of frictionless uh, procedure of both capturing information. We have smartphones that are on us all day long. That have cameras that have microphones that can allow us to capture information and then to quickly share it on these unmediated platforms. And I think one of the other things that's happening in particular with these conflicts, when we have this sort of unfiltered information get shared through them, and this is on the, on the part of the consumer, um, there's a lot of uncertainty around what is going on. We may not have a lot of details on what is happening, why these things are happening, and we're only going off of sometimes what is the most extreme content that may be coming out of these conflicts. And it's giving people certain perceptions, again, of what's going on that may or may not be accurate about what's going on. So I think those things in particular, and we become much more susceptible When we have that sort of uncertainty going on about, you know, what's happening. So I think we're seeing both of those things play out in today's, you know, the multiple conflicts that are going on.
2: And to follow up on that, Michael, because this this circumstance I don't want to say it's really unique, but we are all following it live very closely on a daily basis. You know, can we or should we distinguish content creators from citizen journalists on the ground, which they've acknowledged is near impossible to access? you know, we know that here as consumers, we're seeing it through social media. You know, how how can can we distinguish the the two different creators? You know, content creators versus citizen journalists.
4: Well, in particular, I think the platforms have made it almost uh impossible for us to make those to distinguish those things just um through the process of scrolling through all of that information it takes time for us to really create and grow and you know learn about and really distinguish sources of information that have the intent and express intent to inform us and on what's happening and i think For journalists, as we heard in the last segment, journalists have a set of procedures, methods, and also multiple individuals that get involved when between the process of capturing information, making meaning of that information, and then making sure that we uh, maybe I'll use the term package that information so that it is understandable for the audience members. We heard about that in the last segment as information that goes through a journalistic uh, organization. It goes through multiple editors. It goes through fact checkers and so on before it gets out to the public to make sure that that information is credible, that information is verified, and that it is correct when it gets to the audience members. I think that process is missing when we have people like the citizen journalists, we have the individuals. Or in some cases, we may even have propagandists who have a, you know, an agenda to push. We don't have those same sort of procedures in place. And in platforms like social media, all of these different players, all of the news organization, again, the propagandists, the individual, they are all playing in the same sandbox. And the platforms themselves do not have an incentive to make distinctions between all of those different players. So for the consumer, it's becoming more and more difficult for them because they now have to make that determination and figure out those distinctions on their own.
2: So, Adrian, I want to ask you to respond or add to this in a little bit, but I want to pose one more question to Michael before we get to that. You know, Michael, a lot of people, especially younger generations, rely very heavily on social media for their news, including what's happening right now, you know, what we're talking about. And I think we recognize that there is, of course, misinformation on these platforms, you know, like you mentioned just now. But I want to also pose a question of, you know, how does social media help fill those gaps? gaps, especially we talked about accessibility earlier at a time when international journalists aren't allowed on the ground in Gaza. You know, wouldn't we not know the reality on the ground in Gaza if we didn't have these citizen journalists?
4: That is very true. And that is a, um, I think, you know, what we also have to add into the conversation, and I'm glad you bring that up, is that social media for all of its ills, yes, has Democ- overly democratized um, media production and distribution. And what it has done is it has allowed for more people who did not have a voice that got in the, you know, that did not uh, play in the same places where our gatekeepers, our traditional gatekeepers, the TV broadcasters, the newspapers, the publications that sort of stood in the way of us getting information. We now have a much more open system that allows us to hear varying points of view, allows us to get information from people who are on the ground, and it is very unfiltered. So that's been a great thing that it has opened up those doors. But at the same time, I think what that that democratization has done is it now has put onus on the consumer to, again, make distinctions between all of these different types of information and they get thrown at them. And I think these are new skills that all of us are having to take up. Journalists, again, I think have training on doing that so they can, you know, they can talk to multiple sources. They can suss out uh, details. They can go out and verify information. But for the average consumer, yeah, we have Google. But even when you go to Google, You still have a lot of information that's coming at you that you have to make meaning of, and you have to take a lot of procedures through that. Lots of consumers just don't have those skills.
1: Yeah, I agree with um, uh, just about everything that's been said. Um, One of the first – there was a piece that I broke, probably the article that I am proudest of, which I ended up publishing on my blog (laughs) After about a year of back and forth with a major publication who eventually paid me to spike it because they wouldn't run it. And the gist of this story, which even I didn't fully understand uh, the ramifications of the story, was that the Russian military was uh, far less powerful than a lot of people were saying. I published this piece in 2021. Um and, um, and I think y- y- talking about, you know, the, the utility of citizen journalism and uh, just people walking down the street capturing something, a photo or a video with their smartphone and posting it to Facebook or Instagram or TikTok or what have you, is that in the aggregate you do get a sense of what is real. Um, with the war in Ukraine, you know, most of my—I I knew that the Ukrainians were going to fight. I and I knew that there was a, a portion of the Russian military that was ri- wide, wildly overhyped. I—I um, I, I was incorrect in, in in why I thought that. I, I had this in in my head. I thought that it was kind of um, people in Washington D.C. who had a vested interest in. Um, presenting a greater threat to sell you know more a defense industry kind of thing. and it wasn't that. It was just that people sincerely believed that the Russians had modernized their military and they hadn't. Um, we got that you know in the first weeks of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We got that from you know videos of Ukrainians fighting uh, all across uh, Ukraine. Uh, Ukrainian farmers you know hooking up uh, tractors to, to tanks and driving them away, wild incompetence by Russian soldiers. Um, similarly, I think with the um, Israeli—well, uh, first with the Hamas, um, you know, attack on Israel, which was filmed and disseminated, and we we got to see a lot of uh, horrors and outrages, and then um, the Israeli military response going into Gaza, and you know, we've seen the widespread devastation of the cities there, and 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 seeing that, I've thought to myself, you know, I wonder in 1991, you know, during Desert Storm, if we had similar. You know, citizen journalism. If we'd have a different idea of what the war, that first you know uh, invasion of Iraq, really, a, a driving Iraq out of Kuwait would have looked like, we don't have that. We don't have access to that, that kind of widespread imagery. We just know that there was a lot of, um, a lot of damage that was inflicted afterwards. We have accounts of this. So. Um, yeah, I guess uh, my 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 overall thinking about this is that in the aggregate there is you can see you know the videos of the thing, the photos of the thing, and you get to to you get to come up with a picture of it, but um, that doesn't. Um, on the other hand, you do have this. To me, I'm it's not that I'm skeptical of citizen journalism. I just I, I really want people to 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 understand and know that when you call yourself a journalist, you're essentially you know, taking on to yourself a scientific mantle, the mantle of a scientist performing an experiment, you know, ninth grade biology, 10th grade biology, you have to write out what the experiment is and you have to do it in such a way transparently that anybody else can go and get the same results that you have. Um, and I also don't want to disparage, you know, people, uh, you know, if you see a plane fly overhead and drop a bomb on a building, you know, take a video of that, you know, take photos of that by all means. Um, and there are things that can be extrapolated from that, but uh, you know the danger of that. Thinking about you know what the downside is is I don't know if you remember the the opening of the invasion, of uh, uh, Israel's invasion of uh, I think it was um, Gaza City. There was a hospital that was uh, struck, and for for one or two weeks afterwards, like the account of that changed almost by the day. Was it uh, an interceptor missile? Was it a Hamas rocket? Was it fuel? Was it a bomb? Uh, I honestly still do not know. I don't know what happened with that hospital. Does it really matter? No, a hospital got bombed in a war. You know, that's like, that's the most salient fact. But it's the role of the journalist to say, okay, we have footage of this thing happening. You know, let's go to the place. Let's talk to people. Um, Let's, yes, talk to the Israeli military and see if we can find, you know, what the flight paths were of jets. Maybe they're not going to give you that information. But if you haven't tried, then... Uh, you have no chance of, of 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 saying you know what's what. So, um, yeah, I, I social media is is wonderful. I, the the uh, and I will say also that the solution that I've come up on, uh, and I think probably most journalists have, is what what you have the opportunity you have with social media, is to curate your own feed. So you take people that you know are, are in the business of journalism, you know that there are – if they're not in the business of journalism, they're people of integrity, they're friends or relatives, people that you trust. You have some way of verifying that information and by assembling a, a, a timeline or a feed on any of these social media outlets of those people uh, and, and taking out the people that you know are going to lie to you uh, for partisan purposes on either side. Uh, you you can come up with a pretty good approximation that's that's very responsive of what is happening in the world.
2: And, Michael, we, we've only got about two minutes left here, but I do want to ask, you know, one of your research areas is media literacy and misinformation, which are things that we've been talking about throughout this hour so far. Can you talk about what does media literacy look like when it's applied to social media and traditional media?
4: Well, I think in particular what it should allow people to do is it gives them skills to do the things um, that were just mentioned, like to curate a feed, to find and find reliable, incredible sources of information. I also think that what it allows people to do is to think about what are the intents of the creators of that content that's coming at me. And a lot of times we can sort of suss that out by, you know, seeing the history of a um, a particular outlet or a particular source taking into account how independent that source is, do they have something to gain by either sharing information in one, you know, that gives you one perception or another, um, and other things like that. So it's also, you know, it's like understanding how does media work? How does it work on us? And also knowing how do my own perceptions and backgrounds help me to understand information that I am... Seeking out, first of all, and information that's being that's coming at me. Um, so it's really, really important for people to take up these skills, especially in this varied media ecosystem that we have in front of us.
2: You've been listening to Michael Spikes. He's a lecturer and program program director at the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern University. Thank you so much, Michael, for being with us today.
4: Thank you for having me.
2: You're also listening to Adrian Bomberger, who's a writer and a journalist. Adrian, thank you so much for being on today.
1: It's been a pleasure, thank you.
2: And coming up next, we're gonna hear about an investigation done by the Wall Street Journal on traditional media versus social media when it comes to news. You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Coverage of the Israel Hamas war has played out in traditional news media and social media. According to the Washington Post, TikTok videos on the Israel Hamas war have drawn billions of views. This content can be at times relentless. Some content can be graphic, and social media companies struggle to monitor the content coming in. Still, Social media can help fill in the gaps and bring in perspectives often left out of Western media. The Wall Street Journal decided to investigate what this looks like specifically on TikTok. Joining us now is Georgia Wells. She's a tech reporter with The Wall Street Journal. Thank you so much, Georgia, for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. So, Georgia, can you start off by telling us about the onus for this reporting and investigation around TikTok?
0: Yeah. So. So we looked at TikTok because overwhelmingly, that's where young teenagers are spending their time when they're on their phones. And what's interesting about TikTok is TikTok doesn't operate the way kind of some of the more traditional social media um, that we kind of first kind of started using, like Facebook, for example. Like on Facebook, you've got, you friend someone, you're connected with them, and then you see the types of content that they post. So there's a little bit of a, you know where that content is coming from. On TikTok, there's this sophisticated algorithm that chooses, it selects which video to show you. And there's a little bit of a like who you follow, who you like, but overwhelmingly that algorithm appears to be showing you content based on what you have previously engaged and rewatched and and lingered on when you were watching videos. And so it means that when you watch something, it it serves you more of that. Um, But it's really hard to know if you're a parent or a teacher or a researcher, it's hard to know the experience that like a, a specific young person might be having on TikTok, unless you go back through their viewer history, or you have kind of family pairing turned on because, because you can't just scroll through who the friends are, or who they're following and, and get a snapshot of the content they might be experiencing. So, so in order to to really understand kind of the types of content some young people might be observing. We spun up these automated accounts that we referred to as our bots and we programmed them to, um, to to watch content or sorry, I should have mentioned we we really wanted to know what um, the experience young people were having when they were encountering content about this conflict in in Gaza and Israel. And so we programmed these bots to rewatch content about this conflict and see what happened.
2: And, and they really, they became inundated
0: with content about the conflict.
2: And how were, you engage, how were you engaging with the content? You know, were you commenting, liking, or just watching the videos?
0: Just watching. We were not commenting or liking. It just, it was, it was very simple. If the video had a hashtag related to, to the conflict, then the bot would rewatch the video. And if it didn't have a hashtag related to the conflict, it would just kind of swipe up to the next video.
2: And you mentioned earlier that because the investigation is focused more on what's going on in the Israel-Hamas war and how young people are are consuming the news, you know, did this seem to you to be more pro-Israel or pro-Palestine? You know, what was, what was that? What did that look like for you?
0: Yeah, yeah. So the, um, it was more pro-Palestine, although it's um, kind of, I think we didn't start the um, investigation until, you know, several days after the October 7th. Seventh attack. And so I suspect had we started it earlier, it might have been more pro-Israel. But by the time we started watching about 59 percent of the videos that TikTok served were pro um, kind of kind of pushed more pro-Palestinian perspectives and about 15 percent pushed more pro-Israel perspectives. Obviously, you know, 59 percent and 15 percent don't add up to 100 percent, but that's Mm -hmm. because not all of the videos had what appeared to be like a really clear perspective
2: and so georgia in response to allegations against bias on on TikTok, you know the company did put out a statement saying our recommendation algorithm doesn't take sides and has rigorous measures in place to prevent manipulation is that something that you found to be true or reflect in your reporting and your own experience with this
0: yeah so like so our reporting didn't really get into the like nitty gritty of what was happening behind the scenes. It was simply just like what, you know, here's the breakdown of the videos that TikTok served our bots. Um, But but because by the time we started watching, the conflict had kind of shifted towards more the um, kind of Israeli uh, kind of push into Gaza, I or i don't know whether tiktok was putting their thumb on the scale but none of the sure. reporting kind of suggested necessarily that they were
2: um yeah and i guess one could argue you know isn't this how tiktok works with all of its content you know does this have a differentiation from those contents
0: no and so so that's part of what's really interesting here is that in in this experiment what tiktok ended up serving the bots was really quite extreme rabbit holes and that's similar to when when I'm scrolling TikTok and I've had a rough day and I'm looking at like cute animal video after cute animal video, I'll end up like really deep in a rabbit hole of cute puppies and cute kittens. But I think most people wouldn't look at that, and, or maybe they would, but it's not um, such a question of like the effect that could have on my mental health or on my understanding of the world so much because we're talking about cute animals, but but when you have a rabbit hole that's so zeroed in on such intense content, when it's video after video of war footage and, and these accounts were set up to be 13 years old. I think that's what really kind of raises questions about the effect of rabbit holes on kind of the development of young people and how they learn about um, these types of conflicts when it's through these more kind of skewed universes of, of rabbit holes.
2: I'm really glad you mentioned that just because we are talking about content that's more extreme than the cute animal videos that you're talking about that we watch for our mental health. And so I guess on the flip side, I want to ask, you know, can this content help younger people to bear witness and be exposed to new and different perspectives and issues, um, especially ones that might not reflect in traditional media, as we mentioned earlier?
0: So I think that's a great question. I think definitely like the promise of social media absolutely can, it can expose people to as many different perspectives like that are kind of far away from their living room if they're sitting in San Francisco or New York City or, or wherever they're um, kind of living out their life right but the nature of some of these rabbit holes was quite a bit more um, like either if they were in the pro-Palestinian rabbit holes it was, it was very pro-Palestinian or it's in the very pro-Israeli rabbit holes very pro-Israeli and there wasn't a tremendous amount of um, kind of Alternate perspectives offered into these rabbit holes and Michael earlier made the point of content that's kind of extreme versus propaganda versus content that has the express purpose of trying to inform us and I think that's really top of mind here because some of the videos I came across were like I think pretty informative one of them was a history teacher kind of doing these like, you know, 30 second histories of the Middle East, but a lot of the content that spreads the most on social media often is more extreme. Um, can, can I share like two examples of content that really stuck with me, but I just want to preface this with a, with a content
2: warning. Sure. Go ahead. Um, we got about a minute and a half left.
0: Oh, perfect. So so one of the videos was a woman describing the phone call she received from her son who was at the Nova music festival near the Gaza border and how she was on the phone with him when he was killed. And another video was a woman in Gaza city you can hear the bombing in the background and she's talking to the camera and she's explaining why she's decided she doesn't want to lose her home and she doesn't want to leave that night and she's worried she might survive the night might not survive the night and both of those videos were these like incredibly intense scary videos that kind of you know if it's a 13 year old watching these they're not that graphic but I think they still you know I'm not sure they're particularly appropriate for a 13 year old but
2: Yeah. Well, on that note, 30 seconds left. Um, Is there a way to find a balance for the younger audiences between the serious content and the not serious content? 30 seconds. I I think
0: unfortunately, because of the nature of the rabbit holes, balance is not something that they've currently, um, you know, prioritized that much in the way they're designing the app. But I think that's definitely something that like parents should be thinking about going forward when they're helping their children select which apps to use.
2: Well, thank you so much for that. Thanks to Georgia Wells. She's a tech reporter with The Wall Street Journal. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Catherine. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening.